You're in a Fenestration Conversation, where Canada's window and door industry talks about the things that matter to our businesses. Now here's your host, Patrick Flannery. Hi, and thanks for joining me today on Fenestration Conversations. Today we spoke with Al Duick of Duxton Windows and Doors in Winnipeg. Um, Al, I think, is uh, well-known to uh, most people in the industry from his uh, work with Fenestration Canada. Uh, he's the founder, uh, one of the founders of Fenestration Manitoba, uh, and uh, one of his passion projects certainly has been uh, the FenCon show uh, that takes place every year in March in uh, Winnipeg. And uh, Al's really been a fairly tireless advocate in the industry uh, for the window and door manufacturing sector in Winnipeg and Manitoba. Um, he's been uh, really active in trying to promote, uh, I think, improvement in uh, the window and door industry. Uh, he's, uh, I know he and I have had many conversations about uh, productivity and automation and how there should be uh, maybe more investment uh, in that. Um, he's a, a big advocate of uh, lean and continuous improvement processes and bringing the quality standard up in the industry. Uh, he's very interested in energy standards and improving those. Uh, and as you'll see in this podcast, he uh, is also very proactive and I think forward thinking when it comes to labor practices. Uh, he did a presentation at Windor uh, that I thought uh, revealed a, a very uh, a very good approach, a very uh, uh, a lot of interest and focus on uh, on his staff and how to bring them along um, with uh, a lot of you know sort of specific tips and tricks that I think people can can take forward into their own shops. Uh, and because of that, Al has had a lot of success uh, integrating uh, foreign workers, including immigrants from Africa, uh, into his shop in uh, Winnipeg and uh, really found some some gems out of that that he's been able to, to bring forward and keep in the operation for many years as uh, very skilled employees. So um, without further ado, let's uh, turn to Al Duick from Duxton Windows and Doors. We're here with Al Duick from Duxton Windows. How are you doing today, Al? Great. It's a wonderful new year in 2020, and we're looking forward to an exciting year as we uh, keep uh, creating excellence in Canadian window and door manufacturing. Oh, there there you go. Spoken like the what, – what are you, the acting president of Fenestration Manitoba now, Al? Is that uh... – is that the correct uh, title? Uh, that would be the correct title. It's yeah. a role that I somewhat reluctantly uh, fulfill until uh, our uh, leadership team from an existing board uh, steps up and takes over for the future. Yeah, no one's no one's driving uh, window and door manufacturing in Manitoba like you are. You're a, you're a great advocate for it for sure. I guess. The, back. Yeah, I guess the I guess the first question is: uh, Have you put the bike away yet, Al, or are you still riding to work? In uh, Manitoba in January, that's the question. Uh, believe it or not, it was kind of fun because uh, I used to, I was going to write an article about this because I uh, had uh, thought to myself, if somebody would have asked me uh, even as little as a year ago uh, whether I would ever consider myself to be a four-season cyclist, I would have said never because till now it was always like the frost bike author it was i put my bike away when snow comes permanently and that's that but <laughs> this year things changed a bit uh for a variety of reasons november wasn't quite as much but uh in december uh i pulled out my my own version of a frost bike and another bike and i began to realize that uh, as long as you didn't try and uh cycle in deep snow it was completely viable. So huh. in the end, I ended up uh, cycling just over 100 miles in December. And wow. uh, on uh, January 1st, I went for one of my, what I call it, my blitz ride around Kildonan Park and put on another five miles on January 1st. And I thought that was a really appropriate way to start the year, you know? <laughs> you're, 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 you're a dedicated man, Al, and I know that's where you have all your deep thoughts. So it's, uh, uh, it's worth, well worth it. Well worth as a good time. friend of mine said, uh, it's also a great place for you to uh, let your mind run free. And then his comment was, I do some of my best thinking on a bicycle. And I think he said he's just under 70. Uh, so it's interesting wow. that uh, you don't have to be a, a young pup uh, to make yeah. that work. 
Well, I, I, I guess I have fewer and fewer excuses. Good for, good for you. <laughs> um, okay. Well, th- let's start. Just t- tell us a little bit about, uh, well, I guess your, your, your background and, uh, and a bit about uh, Duxton. Sure. No, I uh, would say that. I was thinking, uh, reflecting on this question uh, briefly, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because I look back as a graduate from the University of Manitoba's Master's of Business Administration. I uh, came through in an era when uh, basically Bay Street and Wall Street were where everybody of that group was supposed to go, and for whatever reasons, as the fork in the road, uh, I ended up uh, with a manufacturing business, and that's where I've stayed my entire uh, professional career, if you will. And uh, that fork in the road, uh, I don't know, somehow taught me uh, a love of uh, manufacturing, even though my soft entry was as a classic marketing analyst uh, with First Stuff Farm Equipment. But during that period of time, in six years over there, I uh, evolved towards more of a, a deeper interest in more advanced products, such as the Versatile Bidirectional Tractor, and that's kind of where it's been. It has, uh, you know, allowed me to uh, apply my background and training and, and work with it. Hmm. Good stuff. And describe uh, describe Duxton just a little bit for us. How how how, how big? What do you make? Uh, that kind of thing. Well, I was fortunate from that background to uh, spend 13 years with uh, another Winnipeg uh, window and door manufacturer, uh, which was privately owned, which uh, grew in a pretty robust, uh, innovative way. Uh, ended up it, it ended up becoming uh, Canada's largest window and door manufacturing enterprise by volume at one point in time. And so it was a great uh, experience for me because I was able to, in that case, kind of transition some of uh, my skills into that particular application. But uh, coming from um, a type of background where uh, one's, uh, I don't know, independent spirit uh, takes you, it was my uh, good fortune that my wife allowed me to (laughs) jump onto a very thin patch of ice or no ice uh, into starting Duxton from zero and literally from the basement of my house. And um, it's uh, something that you pour time, attention, have great support from. And um, so from day one, we began manufacturing uh, pull-treated fiberglass window uh, systems and went through classic uh, organic growth of, uh, you know, uh, one or two people and a few more people and uh, from a small rented uh, space to a slightly bigger space to a slightly bigger space and then about eight years, we finally purchased our uh, existing uh, factory office area, and uh, we've just, uh, you know, gone through a journey of uh, uh, trying to create uh, our own version of a Winnipeg manufacturing success story, if you will. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite a uh, it's been quite a rise for sure. I know uh, I know the new building was a was a big was that last year you opened that. Uh, no, we're actually uh, still in the process. We are adding uh, a, a new building at the back of our right. property, and uh, we hope to have it uh, activated, if you will, by somewhere in that March-April period of time. And uh, mm. hopefully that yeah, will allow us to uh, keep uh, evolving in our current address. Yeah, exciting stuff for sure. Okay, so... The reason uh, the reason we wanted to to do this, I think, was um, the, you had made a presentation at Windor that I thought was excellent, um, where you uh, spoke about really your approach to your workforce, and uh, and, and it's something that every, everybody struggles with, um, but I I still don't think everyone gets the focus on to, to the extent that you have, and 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 you've done some. I think some good thinking about it. It sounds like you've had some interesting results and taken some different directions. So I want to explore that stuff a little bit. Um, tell me, I guess, I guess start, let's start sort of 30,000 foot level. What, 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 what is your general approach to, to, to managing your staff? What's, what's, what's your goal with, with your people in the, in the plant? It's an interesting question, and I think that we probably have all worked uh, with and under uh, different types of people with different styles of uh, management and or ownership. Some uh, seem to have a top-down, tough guy kind of approach, and 
I don't know. I feel like uh, pretty much all of us uh, uh, have experienced different situations. Sometimes they have a pretty big wall between the production team and the white collar front office management ownership. And I don't know. I was just never really uh, brought up with that attitude in psychology. And uh, maybe partly because when you start something from scratch, you, you have your I'm not much of a make it person uh, in terms of my uh, handiness with tools, but I certainly uh, understand our uh, manufacturing process in uh, quite a variety of ways and, and hence have always had uh, somewhat closer uh, contact with, let's say, our production team. And uh, as a result, many people have commented on the fact that there virtually is no or very little wall between uh, you know, the front office and the production team and uh, a lot of those people will actually comment on the fact that uh, it feels somewhat like a family and uh, may sound trite or made up or something but uh, truth be known I, I think that if you treat people like you want to be treated uh, and they feel like uh, my work is appreciated because you know I take the time to come through and talk to them and it, it just creates a whole different kind of feeling, right? It's uh, our, our culture definitely is a work hard, play hard kind of uh, culture. It is a culture based on win, 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 where uh, certainly the only reason I think that you can be successful is uh, to have uh, an engaged group like that. But uh, I, as I said, I don't think it has to be a tough guy top down. It, it can certainly be one that is uh, built from with a, a more positive spirit, if you will, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I and I get your I get your point on the on the tough guy thing. It 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 does come down to personalities a little bit sometimes, doesn't it? I I, I mean, so, sometimes it's 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 just literally you know how the guy at the top wants to relate, and uh, and 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 then I think you know sometimes over time some some sort of jaded kind of paranoia will creep in. Uh, you know, when you have some bad experiences with, with, with certain employees, but, but, um, you, you know, I heard a wonderful story once, uh, not long ago, which is a true story. There, there is a, was a company in, uh, in Winnipeg called Macdon actually, which mm -hmm. apparently some years ago, we're talking probably about 30 ish years ago, uh, had been in deep trouble, virtually, I think nearing bankruptcy or something. And, uh, a gentleman stepped in and, I don't know the details of it, but acquired it. Joe McDonald, I think was his name. And he became then the owner operator of it and uh, turned it around completely. And the person who was more familiar with the details of it commented on the fact that Joe was an individual who uh, would always go through the factory and talk to people. And sometimes it was hard to get him out of there because he would spend so much time talking to them about, you know, what they're doing, their lives, their family, et cetera. And, Guess what? That firm that had been virtually in bankruptcy, I think a year or two, was sold for a very large amount of money because mm. the family had just reached a point where, and they were attributing, uh, you know, a sizable portion of the fact that they had created that kind of a positive environment. And so, you know, we can read this in books and theories, but I do think that, uh, and beyond simply sort of the talk, I, I do feel like. Uh, in our case, we from the beginning felt as if, look, let's operate like somebody that is structured the right way. So we had a benefits program in place uh, quite quickly. And uh, so when people joined us, they felt as if, you know, they were going to a place uh, where, uh, you know, it was being built with that kind of concept in mind, if you will. Yeah. Trust is a word that I like a lot. And I, I think I think when you when you when you show that kind of uh, like, like you say two, two elements there, I mean, you, you put a benefits program in place, that's fine. And, and then, and then you also, you're running, you're running according to a certain structure. Everybody in there can feel like, you know, these guys know what they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and there can be a, I think that, I think that adds a lot to people when, the, you know, to their, to their feeling of being connected to the company when they feel like they can trust mm -hmm. what's going on at the top end, you know? Yeah, and it's funny. I, I will. It's. I, I feel like we all take some of these things from our prior experiences again and get. And at my uh, experience at another company, uh, uh, 
there had been something that turned out to be called the fast updates and it was a clear and focused attempt by owners ownership management to meet with um, the production team with some regularity and give them insights into what's going on where are we going what are we doing and for me, that, as a result, came perhaps somewhat more naturally, and we will quite often have various kinds of events, whether it's a um, special uh, Saturday breakfast or uh, a luncheon event where we gather our team together and we've developed a whole range of our own little uh, things where uh, new people have to get up and make little speeches, and, and we turn it into a bit of a fun uh, thing of from a variety of points of view, but it is very much uh, an attempt on our part to uh, talk to them about, you know, the, where we're at and what we're doing and where we're going and perhaps, you know, announcing other uh, events and activities that we're planning. And uh, so it, it it has some quite specific structured approaches that way or un- semi-structured, if you will. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and tell me, the, the, the Saturday breakfast, I, I remember that from your presentation. Um, t- t- tell me about that. Uh, where, where did that. How did that get started? And it's, it's actually you bringing in the food, right? Or at least it was. Yeah, correct. No, it's, it's uh, somehow, I don't even remember the exact original roots uh, from quite a while ago, but I always remember thinking to myself that when you're really busy, let's say, especially in the summer or fall, when you're just trying somehow to get from point A to point B that you then are uh, leaning on people to some degree to come in on a Saturday and to for them to give up their time. Somehow for me, it was always a bit of a case of, okay, one of the little rewards that I'm going to try and make uh, clear is that uh, I'll, at their coffee break time in the morning, I'll uh, go bring in food. And a lot of the times it has been uh, literally go to Sobeys, uh, a little commercial, and uh, you know, fill a, a basket. And uh, you know, as it's evolved, it's become a little bit bigger package. But then I haul it into the luncheon room or t- staff room and uh, spread it out. And I've, I felt sometimes, Pat, as if that's even uh, an important part where you know I'm more as if I'm serving my people as opposed to you know. Yeah. And, uh, so I feel like it's a a positive event from that point of view. And sometimes we've even turned it further. And if it's a smaller group on a Saturday where we have a chat about things or uh, a bit of feedback both ways and uh, keeps coming back in my view towards the view that people say uh, research has demonstrated that people don't all the time leave for pay reasons or monetary reasons, but they quite often leave if they're not happy. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of your questions was, so what's the purpose of it? And I absolutely firmly believe that uh, that's a really key part that, uh, you know, people feel like they're connected to you and they're doing something of value and uh, yeah, finding it, ways to make, let them see what that is. Right. Yeah. It just, it, it, it yeah, it, it, exactly what you say. I mean, you know, you can, you can have the idea that it's all about the paycheck, but, but I think, I think just experience of everybody shows that it is not. I mean, I mean, right. there, there's an environment there uh, that, uh, that people are going to like or not. And, you know, you, a little, you know, it's just a human touch. It's just, it's just, although I said before about personalities, I, I mean, you acknowledge yeah. these people are, these people are coming in on a weekend, you know, some of them have kids, some of them, you know, yeah. they're, they're giving up their Saturday, uh, we all have lives to live, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, yeah, they're getting paid, and you know, the old school guy go, "Well, to hell, I'm, I'm paying for their time," you know. Yeah. But but it, that's that's limited, isn't it? I mean, there's totally. got to be a, yeah. you know, there's got to be an acknowledgement there. Uh, I think even even beyond that. Hmm. So that that was one of the things I think you also mentioned in the presentation. Um, you guys have a bit, you guys have what, one or two big barbecues, right? We've over a course of time, I would say, yes, evolved uh, quite a, a range of uh, different things. And it's funny, sometimes they just pop out of things that uh, um, happen. I mean, in our uh, current facility next door is a big green open space that the city hangs on to happily. Mm-hmm. And as quite a few of our uh, production team members come more from a uh, soccer uh, uh, 
background. Uh, they love playing soccer. So for quite a few years, we've uh, done a variety of things like that. And in the last few years, uh, I don't know, every second uh, Friday after work, uh, a couple times a month, we've gone our way to and eventually put up some nets and supplied balls and uh it's just so much fun to watch yeah. uh, these guys get, and ladies get out there in some cases uh get out there in the field and just uh, even after a long day have so much fun with soccer and then huh. we've gradually added on a little bit of uh, added things such as uh, bringing in some food and the barbecue and uh so it becomes again a little bit of a special event that way that they uh, have some bonding and the other one that we've done now a few times, uh, set aside, uh, shut down work a little bit early, and then bring in some special uh, events and activities. And we somehow stumbled onto something called human foosball, where uh, there's uh, it's like almost like an air hockey table, but obviously uh, football, soccer, and they're tied onto uh, ropes, and there's like four or five people facing each other. And uh, it's almost like it is like a, a foosball table, really. Yeah, yeah. People, I, I, people tied to their thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. And again, it's so much fun to watch the uh, excitement and competitiveness uh, that emerges out of that, and and the bonding that comes out of it, right? So yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. Oh, that's that, that that's good stuff. You know, if you can if you can get everybody having a little fun together, I think it I think it goes a long way. So. You, you touched you touched on the, the the soccer background, which leads us right into the right into the next question. Um, you're in you're in Winnipeg, uh, not a not a not, certainly not a big urban center. Uh, and then outside of Winnipeg, you're quickly into prairies. Um, so uh, you know, I'm going to object to the. I know you're going to. I know you're going to object center, to that. But, but we'll go. We'll go with that. I know. Go ahead. You, well, okay, that's right. You've got all of Minnesota right there. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and it just, but I mean, what I'm saying is, is, you know, even sure. in Toronto, there's a lot of whining about, about yeah. the ability to find people, right. Sure. The ability to locate talent. You've yeah. gone, you've gone out of the box on that. Uh, uh, you, you've, you've, you've found ways to bring in foreign workers. Tell, tell, tell us a bit, tell us a bit about that. Well, I think that there's a certain amount of natural common sense or process journey that comes out of it. And uh, to uh, just to add a little bit of uh, part to that, just uh, south of us in Fargo, a much smaller, quote unquote, urban center, one of those factories, I think something like 75, 80 percent of their uh, employment team, like Winnipeg, like Duxton, uh, sorry, I should say like Duxton, is consists of uh, a real mix of people from, let's say, non-traditional Americans or North Americans. And I, some of these things, I think, uh, happen um, almost naturally. And I would say that certainly in part for us was the case because uh, a couple of things led us down that trail because people uh, who, as we all know, Canada has been more welcoming to uh, immigration than our uh, neighbors to the south and uh, I'd say in every uh, significant city in Canada, there's clearly uh, a sizable poop of people, a group of people that are arriving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess not by surprise, these people, uh, whether they arrive at uh, wel welcoming things like Manitoba Start or Opportunities for Employment, uh, they then are uh, geared towards uh, going out and knocking on doors and finding uh, jobs. And uh, for us, part of that, because we have uh, gone out of our way again, it's funny how one thing feeds another as you get to know these people and as they decide they like working with these people, they're then obviously happy to send their friends and relatives. And in fact, we've gone out of our way to put in small re reward uh, packages in there for them uh, bring us another really good person that sticks around and we'll give you something up front and, and something after six months to try and make sure it's more than a longer term thing. But again, not surprisingly, uh, as that evolves, you tend to see all of a sudden kind of a bit more of a concentration. So uh, if there's a large group of Eritreans and or Ethiopians or DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, we have found that by that kind of process, we and 
wouldn't refer to them per se as Africans, uh, but uh, much more so the case of perhaps the pride of their nationality. Um, that's that's actually the combination, I would say, of uh, how we have connected with people, how we have recruited them, how we have followed a certain logic in our point of view that says, look, if they respect and uh, feel like these people will fit in with, well with who you are, and because we try to screen them one-on-one uh, right up front and get a sense of their language skills, their uh, suitability for what we do, it just kind of comes on, right? And right. you uh, find that, uh, hey, there's there's a certain amount of turnover that'll happen for a variety of reasons, but um uh, some of the right people stick. And uh, one of the best stories that is, again, a real live story uh, that started one of that uh, sets of groups, uh, this uh, uncle of uh, a couple of the guys brought them in. And uh, I still remember vividly you know, sitting across from them and chatting with them for a while. A couple of young guys at that point, they were now he'd been here six, seven years. And I think they were early 20s, and they were pretty much hot off the boat, uh, you know, bright and shiny, looking for something to do, but not sure where to go. And mm-hmm. towards the end, the, this uncle uh, turned to the, the guys and said, hey, guys, when I got here, I made a mistake. I, I spent a couple of years thinking and looking and trying to figure out what I should do. And he just looked at them and said, guys, don't do it. Take this job and run with it. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, a certain base group of DRC guys have been here that we have uh, loved working with. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's a little bit of the background to that. That's, that's awesome. So how did you make contact with people from there in the first place? I, I obviously it wasn't, you know, like, was this through this Manitoba, like one of these uh, provincial organizations? Manitoba. Some of it, some of it has happened that way, Pat. But some of it has literally just been people uh, arriving and looking for work. But uh, oh. one of there's two organizations. Manitoba Start actually was one of the places early on. I don't remember whether they knocked on our door, and that may in fact have been in their case where some of that was serving a very good purpose because uh, they uh, were basically onboarding people, if you will, giving them some basic knowledge of the culture and ideas. And then opportunity for employment was happened to be another uh, Winnipeg Manitoba organization, and they uh, not only took immigrants but, uh, but some other people who were, let's say, hard to employ or were changing things or whatever the case may be. And uh, I would say in both of those cases, again, it's funny, win-win-win becomes when they begin to say, hey, these people uh, try and take care of their employees, they're a positive place to refer to them, then suddenly the relationship starts warming up, right? And uh, that definitely worked for us where, uh, you know, then not only were they, uh, were we quite easily able for us to pick up the phone and say, Cheryl, we have room for two, three, four more people. Can you please send some for interviews? And they were very happy to do so. And they came here, got to know us, and it was much easier. I'd have to say, uh, stretching that just for a minute beyond the uh, immigration side, we have also worked uh, fairly diligently at trying to uh, strengthen relations with places like University of Manitoba and Engineering, as well as, uh, in our case, Red River College. Uh, And that also has paid dividends for us uh, because once the... uh, uh, educators over there had a better grasp of who we we were and uh, because Winnipeg has quite a large aerospace industry that seems to be one of the things that a lot of these uh, uh, students at a college like that or when you go through I remember thinking once I was asking them so where are you going and it was aerospace 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 and I eventually got to a point of say, saying to these guys um, there are other things where you can make a good living, you know, yeah. and uh, lo and behold, over a course of time, as we became more deeply involved with them from various points of view, they also began uh, referring people to us and they have been a source for us in a very important way uh, for uh, engineering talent and our technical team who you know, are well-trained and have a real interest in manufacturing. 
you know? Yeah, exactly. So how do you get an engineer who's gone into Red River College focused entirely on aerospace? Do you have it? How do you, how do you, how do you get him to think about windows and doors? Making windows and doors, <laughs> or 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 any good question. Less, yeah, oh, no, good question. Flexible. And and it's it's twofold. I think, as you and I have talked about in the past, Patrick, because it drives me crazy when you sense so broadly in our uh, North American society that uh, manufacturing, oh, it means nothing. It's almost nothing. I had that friend a conversation with friends recently again. It's like, oh, it's become nothing. It's such a small part of their GDP. Who cares? And yet you look at it and you see our society has become so tied up uh, to offshore sources of uh, manufactured product. And it, uh, and then at the same time, I'll never forget a conversation with, I had a neighbor kid who uh, was in his early to mid twenties. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, Oh, he's working at one of these large multinational stores and he's getting 20 hours a week. He's very much controlled. He's getting just above minimum wage. Uh, so with fewer hours, he doesn't get benefits. He doesn't have a long-term commitment. I'm thinking of that by comparison to the fact that our people are on full-time. They do get benefits. Mm-hmm. I do take, we take pride in giving them opportunities to grow and evolve and uh, go from entry-level you know, basic knowledge and skills to ever more advanced capabilities, and some of them have grown quite tremendously and uh, developed uh, more and more uh, skills in operating more sophisticated automated equipment and techniques of assembly and consistency of doing things that it becomes, again, a real win-win, right, where they have, uh, you know, evolved in taking great pride. I just remember around Christmas time, one of the guys just sat coming to me and say, Al, I will always remember, you know, we were having trouble with something and you just kept encouraging me to say, you can do this, you can do this. And you know what? I figured out how to beat it. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, here, uh, years later, it's still stuck with him, right? That that kind of encouraging attitude uh, had stuck with him and uh, was one of the reasons that he felt a you know a great pride in what he did you know yeah and and th- those opportunities are, are are so much better like you say than 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 what you're going to find uh, in the in the retail and service sector for, for the most part I mean there's, you know, there's and I think that I, I as I've said to you before Pat I feel like our world and and it's one of the reasons I feel so strongly about events like FenCon where uh, we have a chance to continue to raise the profile of uh, manufacturing as being uh, a career opportunity that can can serve people really well. And as it continues to evolve in sophistication, and uh, I feel personally as if there's a real, real gap in how people think of this, because if our uh, culture, society, and world in North America is... Uh, pretty advanced in knowledge, training, education, skills, software capabilities, why on earth can't we take greater uh, advantage of that, right, in how we uh, evolve in, in, in becoming ever more effective and efficient at making our own products, right? And in that journey, mm-hmm. uh, clearly, uh, it becomes ever a better thing uh, for better careers. And I'm sometimes reminded of Denny Perrault, who is uh, a senior uh, management person at Adfast, and uh, how uh, their uh, business has evolved. And, you know, he talked about how, in their particular case, instead of talking about Kaizen continuous improvement or as lean, Mm -hmm. they actually went out of the way to talk to their staff about, you know what, guys? We're bringing in uh, better techniques of uh, doing our work. Uh, and we're going to use lean to grow our business, not how to reduce our staff, right? Right. And again, it's a win-win. And uh, I think so much of this works that way, right? Where I've sometimes said to uh, some of our production team guys that, you know what, I can talk the talk of win-win, but if I don't deliver on it, Mm -hmm. that's going to be hollow talk, right? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes, again, a full circle of an important thing of, 
our, our team feeling like that they're on the right track, they're being treated well, and they're being uh, there's an integrity to what that means, right? Yeah, and I mean, and and actually, uh, it it ties back a little bit to some of the things we were talking about earlier. I mean, <clears throat> when you have that level of trust and that level of engagement with your staff, when you bring in something like a continuous improvement program, that you must have seen much greater buy-in to that because i mean these programs go into a lot of a lot of factories a lot of plants and 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 more or less fizzle uh because that you know it's it's not followed up on and and there's resistance and all the rest of it um but you you know you guys have have, have been running with this for some time now um do, do you think that the, do you think the added engagement with the staff is is helpful that way no question, and and you're absolutely right. There, there is. Uh, I had to uh, one of those uh, courses actually put in front of people, kind of a bit of a, uh, a joke about how uh, you know some senior executive or owner had turned to uh, one of their production team employees and said, "I want you to put continuous improvement in place, and I want it in place by Monday." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and any of those people who have any knowledge of this, it does not work that way yeah and the most extreme comparison that has really stuck with me from what i heard a while ago is they talked about the fact that a really really good engaged toyota factory has 100 percent of their production team put into or through some forms of continuous improvement courses or whatever mm -hmm. and then you begin to say okay if true success from that process involves it becoming a culture right where this is more than just talk where they do things in a certain way of determining a problem, solving a problem, and maintaining the, the whole program. That began to really sink in. And I will say for us, uh, we started into this three, three and a half years ago. We are very lucky to have in Manitoba one of the best uh, uh, groups and programs, as we understand it, in North America. And, and so we're lucky that way to be able to gauge, engage in them. But Having said so, um, I would say we from the beginning took it on as saying, okay, this isn't doesn't isn't a short-term thing. We're jumping into this for the long term. They talk about uh, engagement from the top, and I'm fortunate that my daughter Ainsley, uh, who's been here now seven or eight years, took it on as uh, something that she uh, believed in and was invested in, uh, and so. That has helped us, I would say, uh, in the process. So now we have, I'm not sure, eight or nine people that have either yellow or green belts. Uh, that process of continuing to develop then, then has been there. We have done a variety of uh, leadership training components. And uh, we more recently brought on, on staff a gentleman who has done some uh, training work with us. Not that that's his only job, but... So we're partly into that journey of uh, bringing the culture deeper and deeper into the system. And in that process, I absolutely do believe that win-win uh, uh, has been brought uh, directly to uh, line supervisors and people who feel like uh, they not only are you know, doing that production work, but they're being trained and to uh, in an intellectual level, right? To to understand things at another level. And I've often made the comment to some of them that, hey, hopefully you're here for a long time and the rest of your career. But if nothing else, if in the process of uh, developing an understanding of some of this, this will benefit you and your career for the rest of your career, you know? And you feel like then you've you've uh, truly with integrity given them more than just taking X hours out of their work, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's let's think about it this way. <clears throat> In an alternate universe where you hadn't had this focus that, that, that you've had, where you had just paid people and expected them to show up for work and left it at that, where you had sourced uh, work from want ads around the Winnipeg area uh, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever else you could do there and sort of knock out any farther afield. 
um, and where you hadn't uh, engaged in a lot of these continuous improvement processes. How, how do you how do you how do you think your business would be different today? Had you had you done had you not done those things? <laughs> That's a that's a that's a real theoretical question to it is. Uh, to come at, but um, but I want you to I want you to I want you to think about what the tangible the tangible outcomes have 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 been. It, it's uh, I, I you know it's funny because I do think that uh, coming back to my comment right in the beginning that when I went through my MBA training it was all about oh going to finance and. Bay Street or Wall Street, and I think that we, again, have all heard some of the comments about uh, too many people having the idea that they should just go to university and get a white-collar career, mm -hmm. and there is a, a real reality that's uh, taking uh, root, if you will, and as I watch some of the some of the younger generation going into things like plumbing and electrical and things that you wouldn't have expected. I, I know in my case, I know of uh, one example where a doctor and uh, bankers, a uh, couple of sons are now, uh, you know, plumbers with red seal and uh, one of them is one and some of them is two. And suddenly these guys are getting paid $30, $40 an hour yeah. and uh, are doing quite well at it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I would say that I feel like uh, our North American culture today uh, still has a lot of an attitude of this uh, not being an attractive career, and hence it's, I would say, dip, been difficult to uh, find people who say that, uh, you know, I want to go to that uh, manufacturing uh, hands-on kind of world. And the reality is, like it or lump it, uh, there are uh, there's a reason why people want to come to North America and to uh, improve their lives and and have a chance at a better life. And I have to say, from my perspective, that my experience has been that the vast majority of the people that we have arriving in our doorsteps come with a great attitude of saying, "Hey, I." Uh, I'm here uh, to build my life in North America, and uh, they bring energy. Some of them are surprisingly well educated. I, maybe I shouldn't say that, but uh, sometimes no, there is. It's something it is. a lot of people might not be aware of. Yeah, and consequently, uh, it becomes again part of it of of kind of uh, through the personal engagement with people to getting understanding of who they are, uh, how they'll fit in. Um, and ending up with people that fit your culture, right? That yeah. uh, if it's a work hard, play hard kind of world. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I do feel like had we uh, not been uh, a little more uh, creative, innovative, open-minded, supportive, uh, willing to, uh, in some cases, take on people who have are literally here for one week, have never seen snow, uh, don't speak other than a handful of words in the in the language. Uh, it it would have definitely slowed down uh, or made it more difficult for us to to do what we do. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the that that's the one for me. Do you have tips for getting over the language barrier? I mean, I know that that's a killer for a lot of people. Is 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 if you if you you bring in an immigrant uh, and their their English is not great, uh, it 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 can it can cause problems. How, how have you guys dealt with that? It happens in a couple of different ways, and and I I think the upfront screening takes out uh, some of the, the the biggest language gaps, if you will. Right. Um, the concentration of uh, culture language groups also helps to a point because there's no question that on as I've said to some other people why is it that we all know of Greek town or Chinatown or whatever right and 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 uh, there's just we as humanity have this ability uh, and desire to uh, be with our own kind to some degree right and yeah. it becomes for a whole variety of reasons and uh, certainly on a factory floor uh, where you have people from uh, whatever that background is, from DRC, where they speak French first and a fair bit of English, 
Okay. Uh, they, you, you can to some degree put them in groupings, and uh, you know darn well that uh, you know the language spoken on the factory floor isn't necessarily English. But as long as they can effectively communicate with each other, <laughs> you know the the follow-up part to that is is kind of a mixed bag because I've sometimes tried to do some uh, bit of English language uh, education here. It hasn't worked uh, tremendously well. Whereas on the flip side. We've uh, sometimes literally sent good people back out the door and said, look, when, you, uh, when you're English, your first job now in Canada is to learn English because mm-hmm. I can't have you come here and, and become uh, a, a, an accident because you didn't know what you were supposed to do. And they sometimes yeah. look at me like I'm crazy, but sometimes with a little bit of fun said to them, okay, when you start dreaming in English, you come back. <laughs> now you're ready, right? Uh, and that works to a point uh, because some of them have, in fact, done that. They've, uh, you know, gone away, and I figure, hey, if, if they're actually still ready, still keen to be here after they're gone for a couple of weeks or a month, and uh, a lot of them do take, uh, uh, I think it's government uh, yeah, yeah, so subsidized or sponsored English courses. Yeah, so yeah. they do have, uh, you know, some support that way that mm-hmm. you watch uh, it, it grow and become. Uh, you know, less and less of a factor. So there's there's Greek town, there's Chinatown, <laughs> and then there's Eritrean town on the floor of Duxton windows. Is that is that what we're <laughs> there's definitely groupings like that? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, it's it's what more they, than what do they speak in Eritrea and Ethiopia? There are a couple of different uh, uh, linguistic uh, groupings yeah. in there, um, and you know what? I'm going to be could embarrassed. Be a, be I don't have that one. It's <laughs> some of the but language. Congo is Congo is a lot of French and English. Yeah, I knew that because that was a French colony. Well, in DRC, obviously, the French, because of its uh, background from the Belgian yeah. side of things, uh, has uh, you know a pretty strong influence. I will say that. Um, it's surprising sometimes how uh, uh, I don't know how knowledgeable some of these guys are, and uh, I bet. And in terms of if you think that you you don't uh, that they don't have uh, English language skills, uh, Eritrea has a strong uh, background of education. Uh, maybe their politics and uh, democracy wasn't that strong, but uh, yeah. You know, it's surprising. In in terms of Tigrian is actually Tigrinya. I, I don't know. There's different. Uh, yeah. And Amharic is a is seemingly more of the Ethiopian uh, language. And oh, okay. I, I can't say that I've you know uh, developed. You haven't, learned, you haven't learned very much. Your your conversational Amharic is not. Uh... <laughs> no, not real great. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of another spin that's. Uh, sounds maybe silly but a lot of uh you know I, people have um different ethnic cultural language uh, names that you you don't necessarily pick up but quite as quickly right because if yeah. you're in north america you're used to knowing that one is called patrick and one is called joe and one is called henry yeah. it kind of somehow lines up more quickly right but yes. uh i have i have to say that has been another one that to uh, establish the personal connection sometimes adds a little layer of added difficulty and memory. I find I have, I have to work at it sometimes, you know? Yeah. Well, that little work never hurt anybody, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's good. But you've, you found, you found, um, you've, you've gotten some, you've gotten some really good workers out of that, right? You've, you've, you've had some, uh, you've had some people, you've had some people come through these programs that are, I guess have been there quite a while now, right? Absolutely. No, and the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, uh, two of them, they they are still here six or seven years later. One of them has graduated from an entry-level position to leadership within our specialty area, and then more recently, about a year ago, he now moved into a front office uh, role in terms of purchasing and, and uh, scheduling. So, And for me, that was really important to, again, try to literally communicate to uh, our team that uh, there isn't uh, a glass ceiling or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, And that has happened in a number of different directions where another department, uh, his brother, 
has also uh, basically climbed the ranks to being a supervisor in his area. And uh, again, I think all of that communicates uh, a whole lot to that. Uh, we've also uh, worked with him on periodically you have things uh, perhaps on different job sites, uh, which gives them a chance to literally see what goes on. It's one thing just to see uh, what's the pieces that you're making in a factory, but to actually get out on a site and see uh, a building or a, a fancy house or a fancy window assembled or our high-performance triple glass being site glazed. Uh, it's, it's, again, kind of fun to watch uh, the selfies come back with big smiles on their faces. And one of the things that I feel like has also been a, uh, a real uh, positive uh, technology thing for me is uh, almost all of them nowadays, let's face it, have a Gmail account or Yahoo or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a pretty easy way to communicate to uh, this group uh, with images of things that have happened in the factory or uh, continuous improvement projects or things like that, that again, there's, uh, I would say, a fairly easy way of uh, getting, building in another level of engagement uh, to the team, which isn't even language dependent, right? You, yeah. you don't need to know uh, Amharic to uh, appreciate uh, where some of your projects have gone, right? Right. Yep. Yep. It definitely crosses that, uh, it definitely crosses that boundary. Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, I'll listen, you've given your uh, you've given your approach to the to the workers and the staff uh, uh, a lot of thought. I I, I hope that uh, it it gives other people uh, who are hearing this some uh, some food for thought themselves. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, for coming on here today, and um, I uh, I think uh, I think that was uh, that was a pretty good conversation. So thanks very much. My pleasure. I, I would say, as I said to you earlier, my, uh, I feel so lucky to uh, be Canadian. Uh, I appreciate uh, who we are and what we're capable to do. And I feel so fortunate to be in this uh, environment and, and uh, to give back in, and, and uh, to watch people uh, who have proudly become Canadians and uh, to become such a productive part of our uh, uh, our whole culture and our, our growing country, right? And yep. uh, a small way to give back and, and to hopefully help uh, uh, gain uh, a further uh, love and appreciation uh, for manufacturing, which at the end of the day uh, creates a lot of jobs and, and allows our country to keep growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great thoughts, Al. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You can find this episode and past episodes at fenestrationreview.com or on the major podcasting services. Fenestration Conversation is a presentation of Fenestration Review Magazine and Annex Business Media. <laughs>